0: All right, so we are in the the book of Ephesians where we just wrapped up Chapter One of Ephesians, and kind of we titled the the section of chapter one. we, we kind of thought the theme of sec, of chapter One was the Glorious Gospel like we, we saw that all throughout Ephesians chapter one, the good news about how Jesus saved us is is proclaimed, and the blessings that we have in Christ and how even before we ever existed, God planned our salvation, how He adopted us into his family, how He forgave us of our sins, how he has redeemed us, how he has rescued us, and how he's even sealed us with the Holy Spirit and given us the Holy Spirit. And then even the end of Ephesians ends in this like kind of gospel application prayer that Paul has, right? Like he prays that the people would know and and understand God and his power and his hope and, and his love. And the reason I say that's kind of an application of the gospel because the gospel is the good news that that we get to have a relationship with God when we once didn't. It's the good news that God has made it possible for us to have a relationship with God outside of our strength. Like we can't do it. And so we we've got to look at all the beauties of the gospel, and we're, we're honestly going to continue to do so in, in Ephesians chapter two. And if we were going to title Ephesians chapter two and kind of give it a theme, we'd see it that it that it's really this theme of God reconciling Himself uh, to us, or reconciling us to Himself, and reconciling us to others. There's this this picture of how God reconciles us, and he even gives us a picture of our salvation, what we were like before Christ, what we were like presently in Christ and and, and what we look like as we continue to walk into the future with Christ. And so today, uh, we're we're, going to continue just to walk through this book. Like we're only going a few verses at a time. We're only hitting three verses. And part of that is because it is just so incredibly rich that we think it's important to sit on these things and understand these things well before we move on. And today's text how Ephesians chapter two starts is all about sin. And it's all about what we, what we were like in our sinning. And this is just, I, I, when we come to a text like this, I just don't know if we're always culturally ready for a text like this. Like, I, I just don't, I, I think that culture influences us enough in a way that when we come to hard texts in the Bible, we don't like it. And I think I particularly see this uh, and I particularly see how culture affects us. It might change and, and, and cause us to not see the Bible as palatable. I think the biggest way I see this is, is through Disney. Okay, and, and here's what I mean. Um, I think that the way that Disney tells stories culturally affects us. It affects the way we look at the Bible. It affects the way we look at things in the Bible. And, and for instance, was, my daughter, she, was, she watches this Disney show, and it's called Sophia the First. It's about a girl who grew up in the village doing all right, and then she became a princess overnight. And so um, there's this Sophia who, who goes on all these adventures, and one of the first things she's given as a princess is this amulet, the amulet of Avalor. I, I don't watch it that much. And... Um, <laughs> This is a magical amulet, and it has all these special abilities. And one of the special abilities is that whenever she's in real big trouble, another princess will pop out of it, and another Disney princess, and will just save Sophia and her friends. And so um, this one time, Sophia finds herself stuck in a jungle, doesn't know how to get out. She does have a magic carpet, but it's a wild magic carpet. So uh, it's not tame, and she can't tame it to help them get out of the jungle. And so sure enough, out pops from her amulet princess, Princess Jasmine of the movie Aladdin, and Princess Jasmine is hanging out with her, and, and Sophia's like, we're in trouble. We don't know how to get out, and, and Jasmine's like, look, there's a hole right there in the ceiling, or not the ceiling, but the jungle, and... Um, And then they're like, but our our carpet, it's wild. We don't know how to tame it or whatever. And she's like, oh, I know how to tame it. Here's what you got to do. My boyfriend has a carpet. And then then she she just trains this carpet. And then she just completely saves them out of this jungle where they would have died. And so she rescues these, these two girls out of the jungle. And Sophia, the princess, turns to Jasmine and says, Jasmine, thank you for rescuing me. And Jasmine goes, no, 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 no. I didn't rescue you, I just helped you rescue yourself. To which I think I blurted out at the TV, no Jasmine, you rescued them. Right? And my daughter's like, what's going on? And I, what was happening inside me was just this anger because I just saw how culturally this cultural value of rescuing yourself came forth in this princess show. And so I'm getting angry because I think, man, what if my daughter goes to the Bible one day, which is a story about our rescue that we could not do on our own, and say, no, I've rescued myself. And so as that boiled up in me, I just knocked the remote out of Amelie's hands, and I just said, only VeggieTales from now on. (laughs) Right? And so I didn't really do that. And so I just noticed that culturally we're affected by things. It's easier for me to see what's happening to my daughter. It's a little bit harder to see where I'm culturally affected, so I think it's harder for us to see where we're personally culturally affected. And so I thought, how have I been affected by Disney? And I thought, I have really been affected by Disney because of all of the love stories I've watched over the years. Just every Disney movie is about a princess and a prince or a guy and a gal or a robot and a girl robot falling in love and being soulmates. Like a robot that picks up trash. So anyways... uh, and so, but I've been shaped by this because I, it gives me, my, it kind of influences what my view of love is and how there should be some soulmate out there for me. There should be some person to, to complete me and make me happy all the time. And so then when I come to God's word and I look at how Jesus said, hey, marriage is kind of, it's really hard, it's not for everybody. I go, but not me, that's the other non Wally type people. <laughs> marriage is for me. Right? Or I see, or when I did get married and love became difficult, I something in me reacted more strongly because I, I was like, love shouldn't be this difficult. Love should just make me happy all the time. But the way the Bible talks about love is it says it, it's self-sacrificing. It's not just about your happiness. It's to serve one another, it's to reflect who God is. And so when we come to a text like today that talks about sin, I'm just worried that we have other cultural influences that would cause us to read this text and go, I'm just going to ignore it. That's just negative. Anthony's a fire and brimstone preacher. And my hope is that we could just push away our cultural influences and just ask ourselves the question, what is God speaking through this text today? What is being said? What is truly being communicated? And so that's what I hope that we can do, because it's talking about sin. And sin is mentioned in the Bible a lot. It is a theme of the Bible. And so if we can't quite understand sin in the Bible, we're going to have a problem in understanding who God is and what he's done. And so here's my hope for today, is that we'll read the text together, that we'll try to understand what it's saying about sin and about us. And then we're going to sit on three reasons why I think God would talk to us about our sin, why, why it's good for us to, to look at our sin in these ways. And then we're going to see what, what Jesus offers to us in the midst of it. All right, so let's open to Ephesians chapter 2, and we're just going to read all of the first three verses. <clears throat> it says this, And you were dead. In the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. You just read that at face value, and you probably walk away going, well, sin is bad, right? And all of humans are sinners, and sin is bad, right? And that's kind of at face value what we see when we read that. And I think because a lot of times our category for sin is rules in the Bible, and when you break those rules in the Bible, you are committing sin. And, and now listen, I, I think that is sin, But I think if that's the only way that we look at sin, we are missing a much more comprehensive look at sin. And we are just peddling a tired religious thing because the Bible is much more comprehensive in how it talks about sin. I love what Cornelius Plantiga, a theologian who wrote a book about sin that you should all read. um, And I think it's called Not the Way It's Supposed to Be. The way he defines sin is he says sin is any action that is not the way it's supposed to be. And sin affects our earth and everybody in a way that things are not the way they're supposed to be. And so when we put sin more into this category where, where things are not the way it's supposed to be, I think that's on a human level easier for us to get behind or, or easier for us to understand That sin is anytime things are not the way it's supposed to be. I think we all humanly have a sense that things are not the way it's supposed to be. Like it goes all the way from the little small things, like which way do you put the toilet paper on the toilet roll, right? Under is the biblical way. And then all the way to how should we govern this country and other countries and how should we do politics, right we we all have a sense that things are not right and that's why in politics we're all yelling at each other because there's a sense in us that things are not right like no one is waking up every day and just going you know what humankind we are killing it good job humans like we are just doing so great as a collective group to, no we wake up and we go something is wrong with humankind And so we need a a deeper look into sin. We need to understand what's happening. And so to understand sin, I think we have to understand how are things supposed to be? What is this world supposed to look like? What is our relationship with God supposed to look like? What is our relationship with each other supposed to look like? What's our relationship with creation supposed to look like? What's our relationship, even just understanding ourselves, supposed to look like? And so for us to understand sin, we have to understand that. And I think the Bible answers this question in its opening, in, in, the, in the book of Genesis. In Genesis 1 and 2, it gives us a picture of how things are supposed to look like. And so what we have is from nothing, God creates everything. And he creates all of creations. creation. He creates all the animals. He creates all the stars. He creates the oceans, the land, Everything. And then the pinnacle of his creation is a man and a woman. And they're the pinnacle of his creation because they. what God says about them is that they image God, that they're image bearers, that they reflect who he is. And so when you look at humans and and how they live and act, you can be looking in some way at something something that images God. Whereas all of creation gives God glory, humankind images God, and Adam and Eve imaged God. God and reflected who he was and so they're living in this harmonious relationship with God they're living in this harmonious relationship with each other they're living in this harmonious relationship with the creation right they're just naming animals and just having fun saying like look at this giraffe and and all kinds of stuff and and then they understand their place in the world they understand that God is their authority they understand that God is their creator But in the midst of this garden, God puts this tree, and it's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And God says, just don't eat of that tree. Eat any other tree. Here's some sweet pomegranates. Like, don't eat of that tree, because in the day that you do, you will surely die. And so Adam and Eve, I don't know what they were doing one day, but this serpent comes along, who I believe is Satan the enemy of God, the angel that thought in pride that he was better than God, so God cast him out of heaven. I don't know why he's roaming around the garden, but he is. And he says to Eve, hey, you, sh- you should eat that tree. And it's so ironic how he tempts her, because if you, he says, if you eat of that tree, if you disobey God, if you sin, if you eat of that tree, you, you'll actually become more like God. And the reason it's ironic is because Adam and Eve are the only beings in all of creation that actually do reflect God, that actually do show who God is. But they're, they're tempted and they're deceived and they eat of the fruit and they disobey God and they bring sin into humanity. And then we see sin affects all things. And this is where we see sin start. This is where we see this story of death, and I say this story of death is because two deaths happened that day. I think when God said to them, hey, don't eat of that tree because in that day you will surely die. I don't think he was saying, he, I don't think he was lying to them and saying, oh, it's poison. You're going to die right away when you eat it. I think what he was saying was, if you disobey me, you are going to cause death to come upon this earth. I think God's creation was so good before that death didn't happen. Like I, didn't th- I think Adam and Eve could have kept living in the garden if they had not sinned. So first, a physical death comes upon all of creation because of Adam and Eve. And then I think a spiritual death happens too because God kicks them out of the Garden of Eden. And he says, you, you can't come back here. You can't come back to the source of life, which was this relationship they had with God and all this food they have. And, and he said, you're out. And so they experienced a spiritual death that day as well. And so when Paul in Ephesians is talking about death, we can see that it is so linked to this moment in Genesis when all of humanity fell And we today can feel that things are not the way it's supposed to be, right? Our relationship with God used to be good. Now it's easier to have unbelief. It's easier to just not believe in God. Now, what we also do is we take all these created things of God and we put them in his place. So instead of worship God like we should, we worship all these things like money and people and our happiness more than we worship God. And so our relationship with God has died in a sense. We had a good relationship with each other. Like Adam and Eve, they were just hanging out naming animals and doing all kinds of fun stuff. And they all of a sudden become people that blame one another and despise one another and act selfishly towards one another and hurt one another. And then we see their offspring killing one another. Things are not the way it's supposed to be. And then even their, rela- their relationship with the earth changed. Their relationship with creation changed. Like before, it was harmonious, and they, they were like talking to animals, I guess, was a the thing there. I don't know. And then now animals just try to kill us 24-7, right? And, and then the earth itself has famines and plagues and diseases and things that happen that we just are almost out of our control at times because creation experienced a death that day because of sin. And then even us, we have experienced this death in ourselves because we're not harmonious in understanding ourselves anymore. Like We think that we should be our own authority. We think that we should find our identity in whatever we want to find our identity in, whatever makes us happy, instead of finding our identity in God as creator and king over us and understand that he knows exactly what our identity is. And so things are not the way they're supposed to be, and so when Paul writes Ephesians and he says that we're dead in our sins and trespasses, it is linked to this moment in Genesis. It is linked we are dead in our trespasses. There, there is not a... Uh, this is not Paul being overdramatic. We are dead in our sins and trespasses. And Paul wants us to know that. He's saying, you can't save yourself. You need God to save you. And so this... These, this strong language in Ephesians, we shouldn't move away from it. We should understand that this is what happens when you live contrary to God's design. This is what happens when things are not the way they're supposed to be. So yes, breaking God's commands is sin. But sin is so big in its scope that it affects so much. And I think Paul wants us to know that. I think he wants us to know that sin is not just like this little thing that's not that big of a deal. He wants us to know that it is a big deal. It is causing us to be dead people. He goes on and uses language to describe how we sin and what we do when we're sinning. And he kind of has these three broad categories of how we sin. He says, first, we, we follow the course of this world. That though Sometimes the way we sin, is we just copy other people. We just do what they're doing. And, and I can relate to that because I remember moments on the playground where my friends were doing evil things and I knew that they were evil things because I think God writes the law in our heart. He puts right and wrong in our hearts even when we're far from him. And I would know that they were doing evil things and yet because they were doing those things, I said, well, I'm gonna do it too. I'm gonna do these evil things as well. So when we sin, we follow the course Of this world, he he even says that when you sin, you follow the prince of the power of the air. That's the serpent. That's Satan. So so Paul says that when you sin, you're following Satan. And this term, prince of the power of the air, it's always kind of confused me until I looked at some, some research. And I think first, Paul is calling Satan prince. Because he just got done saying Jesus is king over everything, all rulers and dominions are under his feet, and and Satan's just a prince. He's no king. And he says that this guy, he uh, is of the power of the air. It was kind of in that day, uh, the way that uh, the societies and cultures viewed demons and devils, they viewed them as living in the air kind of a thing. Like, Like we know that air exists, we can breathe it in. Right? But we can't see the air. And so they use that logic to apply it to the demonic realm where they knew that demons and Satan exist, but uh, they couldn't see them. And so this is kind of why Paul is, is using this language. And so Paul says that when you sin, you're following Satan's way. When you sin, you're doing what Satan would do in your shoes, that, that your sin is demonic. It's easy for us to go wake up in the middle of the night and have a weird feeling or see a chair fly across the room and say, that's demonic, right? It probably is. Uh, But it's harder for us to go, my materialism is demonic. My unloving nature is demonic. My unforgiveness is demonic, and I don't just always mean in that, that demons are influencing us, although I do believe in Satan and demons, so I think that's a thing. But what I'm saying is that we are doing what Satan would have us do when we sin. And so it is demonic. And he says kind of how that plays out. This is kind of third area where he just says, we, we just do whatever we want. We just live the passions of the flesh and the desires of our body. And, and unfortunately, I can relate to this too in, in how I sin. Like so often I know something's a sin, but just because it, it feels good, I'll still do it. Like there, I, I think about my anger And I think about how my anger wells up inside of me. Often what comes out is a harsh word towards my wife or towards my daughter. And the reason it comes out is because it feels good to me. Pray for your pastor, but it feels good for me at times to, to, to give a harsh word. Or maybe I don't give the harsh word and I just stew inside my head and I think hateful thoughts about people. I don't think them necessarily uh, because I'm just forced to or something. I I, I think them because in the moment it feels good. That's scary because I think so often that's what our sin looks like. We're just saying saying to ourselves, do what feels good. How often do we treat each other as objects just because it feels good? How often are we so selfish in how we treat each other just because it feels good? good. That's the nature of sin. It is just us doing what we want to do, living outside of God's rule, but now living under Satan's rule and copying just the ways of this world. Paul goes on with a strong language. He says, not only is that all true, but you guys are sons of disobedience, and you are children of wrath. That's intense. Paul is saying, you are naturally sinners. You have a mommy named disobedience and a daddy named wrath. Like, that's insane. Like, the, the, for our society, that looks at sin and goes, oh, no, you're just like, you know, someone was mean to you one time, so that's why you're mean. No, even though that's probably true in some sense. You are a sinner because you are naturally a sinner because you are a human. All of mankind is this way. We are sons of disobedience. We naturally rebel against the God who loves us. And we are children of wrath, which is something we, we are scared of and we don't like to talk about in the church because then we get labeled as fire and brimstone preachers. But please just remember when I made us all pray together a few weeks ago. But we are children of wrath, which means we naturally, because of our sin, deserve God's wrath. Our sin deserves punishment. God's wrath is an outpouring of his justice. It is an outpouring of his goodness in a sense. And that is one of the ways that he will take care of sin one day. And I would not feel faithful to the text if I didn't tell you that that's what the Bible says. The day of the Lord is coming where he will judge you and you will either get wrath or you won't. We are children of wrath. So Paul, in this passage in Ephesians, he says we're dead in our sins. He says we're sinning in all kinds of ways, copying others. We're following Satan. We're just listening to ourselves. We're sons of disobedience and rebellion towards God. And we're children deserving wrath. Happy Palm Sunday. And yes, we... (laughs) we we should focus on the life that we have in christ as well and the rest of ephesians chapter two does that but that we'll save that for next week because i think it is actually good for us to hear these things i think it is good for us to focus on these things and there are a few reasons why i think it's all rooted in though in the bible remembering remembering is a spiritual discipline in the bible Like, God calls his people to remember him, to remember what he did, to remember how he saved them. And so in the Bible, when we remember those things, it is good for us. So when we remember that we were dead in our sin and trespasses, it should move us towards God, not away from him. And there's a few more specific reasons, three reasons why I think that this can move us into a better relationship with God and uh, three reasons why I think it's important for us to focus on this and not just gloss over the negative or what we think is negative or are negative parts of the text. And so three, three reasons why. The first reason is this. When we see sin in this light, it helps us to remember exactly how much Jesus has saved us and from what Jesus has saved us. It helps us to remember how important Jesus' salvation is, how important uh, or how big it is, how beautiful it is. And so when we see that we were dead, not just kind of limping around, but that we were dead and Jesus saved us, it paints a better picture of our relationship with God. The gospel, we all the time, we all the time say it's good news, right? It's, it's good news. That's what that word means. Part of why it's good news is because you are dead and God resuscitated you. I don't know if that's the right word, but you were dead and God brought you back to life. God saved you from death and that is why the gospel is good news. It's not just good feelings. It is the very good news that you couldn't save yourself because you were dead on the ground and God lifted you up and saved you. And so when we remember that in Ephesians. It helps us to know how much God saves us. And, and honestly, our, our society and our culture, we love this idea about God. We just don't give him credit for it. We watch all kinds of stories about people being rescued from death and rescued from wrath. It is the entire Marvel movie franchise. Right? It's just a different color skin every time, like a green dude, a metal dude, like all these kinds of things. Like it, it is a constantly these stories of people being saved from death and people sa- being saved from wrath. And we love it. To nerd out a little bit more with you guys, there's another story about this brave, strong, loyal hobbit I know <laughs> named Samwise Gamgee. And he just follows his boy Frodo around three movies, six hours, like ten if you watch the extended versions, where Frodo's just like, I love this ring, I want to be invisible so ghosts can eat me. And, and just like he's just an, an idiot, the whole movie. And Sam, though, is constantly saving him. He's kicking Smeagol to the side saying, don't eat him, and just helping him and cutting him out of spider webs and saving him. And the Frodo's like, I can't do this anymore. He's like, too bad, I could carry you up this mountain. And it's just, he is awesome and the reason we think that is because he honestly is a picture of what Jesus does with us Jesus saves us from our death he saves us from us constantly wanting to put the ring of sin on he saves us from that and so we love this story but it's hard when we apply this sin to ourselves but I think it's good for us too so that's one reason I think it's important. It helps us to remember the gospel more. When it helps us remember all that Jesus has done more when we see a passage like this in Ephesians. The second reason is this. is I think there's a link, there's a connection between knowing our brokenness, knowing our sinfulness, and knowing Jesus. I think there's a connection there. Like when you know your sinfulness, it will help you to know Jesus. And here's why, there's, there's all sorts of stories in Jesus' ministry where I think he's making just that point, that, that that those around him need to understand that they're sinful in order to know him. So one of the first stories, uh, I think it's in Mark 2, uh, chapter 2, and verses 16 and 17, where uh, Jesus invites Matthew or Levi, this tax collector, to be part of his crew, and they're eating at his house, and everybody's like, why, why do you eat with tax collectors and sinners? And, and Jesus heard, hears this, and in 17, we get his response. He says, and when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners." Jesus wasn't saying, hey, you guys are the really good people. You don't need me. He was saying, because if you just watch how he talks to Pharisees the rest of his ministry, he is giving them woes and judgments and all kinds of stuff. So he thought they were sinful. What he was saying is those that understand that they have the sickness of sin, those are the people I came for. Not those that think they don't have sin or think they're righteous on their own. Jesus, in Luke 18, he, he tells another story. There were these people that trusted in themselves, that they were righteous, and so they were treating others poorly. And so Jesus tells this parable in Luke 18, verse 10. And he says this, Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector." That's pretty strong language. Jesus says, the man who was a sinner, but just acknowledged that he was a sinner and asked God to save him and beat his chest, that man, it wasn't that he prayed the right prayer, it's just that he understood how much he needed God's salvation. That man went to his home justified. This was this this legal term in the Bible saying that he could stand before God and, and legally not be punished for his sin, All just because he knew he was sinful and he needed a savior. I'm going to tell one more story because I really think that our culture and our society says stop focusing on sin. Stop talking about sin. But Jesus says knowing your sin will connect you to me. So I'm going to tell one more story that Jesus that happened with Jesus there was a woman she came in and she washed Jesus's feet at a party with some expensive perfume and there was murmuring and some people even said why would you let this sinner touch you and Jesus says a few things to him but one of the things he says is this therefore I tell you her sins which are many are forgiven for she loved much but he who is forgiven little loves little Again, I don't think Jesus is trying to make a claim like, oh man, she's so much greater of a sinner than you. But even if he is, what he's trying to say is that if you understand how much you've been forgiven of your sins, then you will love me more. There is a connection between understanding our sin and knowing Jesus. And don't let your feelings, don't let other people tell you that that's not true. Because if we understand that, we'll understand our need for a Savior. Maybe some of you right now, you're in this room, you're like, man, I've been having a hard time connecting to God. I've been having a hard relationship with God lately, and a lot of things cause that. But I wonder if, I wonder if you're exalting yourself. I wonder if you're seeing yourself as righteous. And so you are putting up this block of, of self-proclaimed righteousness between you and your fellowship with God. I don't know. I just wonder because Jesus says those that humble themselves, God will exalt into a relationship with Him. So, those are the first two reasons why I think it's good for us to focus on it. It helps us understand the gospel more. There is something about knowing our brokenness and knowing Jesus. And then finally, the reason I think passages in the Bible uh, are like this and that we should focus on them, and again, they're all throughout the Bible is because I think it helps us to know that when we choose sin, we are choosing death. We're not just choosing a mistake, we are choosing death. And I think that Paul uses this language, uh, such strong language, because uh, not, not just to be dramatic, but also to be accurate. Because this is what's happening. And I think he also uses this language because I think so often when we choose sin, it feels like choosing life. In the moment. But the reality is, is when we choose sin, we are choosing death. We are choosing to walk out of the garden. We are choosing something opposite to who God is in his character. And so sin, even though it is spitting in God's face, even though it's rebelling against the king of kings, when we sin, it also has the stink of death with it. When we sin, we are choosing death over life with Christ. And I think that we're not, we're like not disgusted enough by our sin, that we don't see the stink of death on it that the Bible says is there all throughout the Bible and here in Ephesians. And so, uh, if you'll bear with me, I want to get a little artsy for a moment. There's, There's a poem that I want to read. And it's by David Bowen, and it's called "Death and His Sting, Death His Sting and Defeat." And why I want to read this poem is I think it captures the stink of death on sin better than a lot of things I, I, I've seen. And so it's it's a little bit of a spoken word type poem. So maybe I'll go there. I don't know, but I'm going to take a drink of water. And then I just want us to s- sit in this poem. And what this poem does is it, it looks as death and it looks at death. And this, this person that wrote it, he personified death, like as if he could see death and see what death was doing everywhere and how death was interacting with the world. And so let us look at death and let's be repulsed by it through, through the reading of this poem. So here we go. And I saw him, death with his mighty sting exhaling in every breath the plight he brings. To the grave he gave victory, triumphing over life when, with the fear of endless sleep. Endlessly we hide from our mortality. Mortally wounded from birth, we lie to ourselves from infancy, infinitely investing time in a life that will inevitably be taken by this incredible creature that now stands before me, Death. He manifests himself on ordinary days. His six-foot stomach growls with hunger pangs. For his meal, he cannot wait. So we are forced to taste him even before the grave. We are all dying. There is no other way. I see him in Haitian and Japanese earthquakes. He's hating the escapees of his cruel wakes. I see him in poverty, impoverishing the quality of life for regions that are reachable and in those with the reach who find reason not to reach out to treat what is treatable. I see him in disease, taking life out of uninfected yet affected families. I see him in oppression, pressing down on the oppressed and the oppressor. I see him in depression, in Prozac and pain pills and razor blades and bedside wills. I see him in abuse, physical, mental, emotional misuse. I spe- see him in spiritual confusion, material obsession, physical possessions. I see him in marital transgressions, childhood remorse from an ugly divorce. I see him in our slavery to appearances, appearing to care more about our images than those in dying villages. I see him in our ignorance, ignoring truth for some comfortable inference. Death is killing us before we ever even enter the surface of the earth. We are in the service of his words. It is finished, the end of our birth. We cannot hide from this wretched curse. For death and his grave, we constantly rehearse. Death is ugly. And it only exists because of sin. And we experience a spiritual death and physical death. Because of sin, things are not the way it's supposed to be. So when we choose sin, we are choosing death. When we choose sin, we are choosing death. But luckily, there's one actually, though, that chose death so that we didn't have to choose sin anymore. And that's Jesus. Jesus chose death to save you and me. Jesus chose death to reverse all of the horrible things that sin and death bring. And so because of Jesus, we can have life with him. Jesus, he came to earth. He is the picture of someone not dead in sin, but alive in holiness. And then he walks to the cross, and he gets on the cross, being the only holy person ever, and he takes on the death that we deserve, that is the wrath of God for our sins, but he takes it on so that we one day don't have to die, so that we don't have to physically die, but we also don't have to spiritually die, that we can have a relationship with God here and now. And then he raised from the dead to to show that he defeated death and to share in life with us. And we'll talk more about that next week because that's what the text focuses on and it's Easter. But we need to understand that if we're turned towards sin, we're turned towards death. And we need to understand that we need to turn to God. God. Christian and non-Christian alike, if you are pointed towards sin, you need to repent. Repent doesn't just mean to say, I'm sorry to God, but it means to look at your sin in the face, see how ugly it is, see how much you need a Savior in the midst of it, and turn to God and say, God, I need you to save me from all of that. I need you, God. That's what it means to repent. I honestly wish, if you're in here, you're not a Christian, I wish that you would listen to the conviction of the Holy Spirit right now. I promise you are dead in your sins, but you don't have to be. And Christian, this should push us away from ever choosing sin because sin is death. And we have Christ who is life. Let's pray, church. God, we love you and we are so thankful for you. Why are you so good to us, God? God, we are a mess. We are dead in our sins and our trespasses. We can't save ourselves. We need you. God, help us. God, today, help us to to see the beauty of the gospel is right now in this moment, we can feel conviction, but we don't have to feel condemnation. That your son took on the wrath that we deserve. So God, convict us, help us to see that that is true. Particularly, God, I want to pray for anyone in this room that's having a really hard time with this idea that you would soften their heart right now and do something miraculous to cause them to know that this is true and that you are life. God, we love you and we thank you for your saving grace. Thank you for saving me and us based on nothing we do. Amen.